throughout history, um, it's kind of been a, a pattern of human beings to put people on our currency. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but money, you know, it, it's just something that we've kind of always done. Um, and the same is true in ancient Rome. Um, they began producing coins in the late 4th century BCE, and um, early coins depicted heads not of people, but of gods and goddesses. And so they would have a god or goddess on the front side of the coin, often like a side profile. And then on the back um, would be depicted animals or natural resources, some, some kind of symbol of historical event that went along with that particular god or goddess. And so it, it's out of that kind of development that we get the money that you have in your pocket right now, if you have any money in your pockets right now, right? Um, and, and it wasn't until 44 BCE, so after Christ, that a portrait of a living person was placed on a coin. And that would have been Julius Caesar. And he started to, his, his profile started to appear on coins and he kind of set a trend. And after him, instead of having these gods or goddesses or someone who had died previously, um, you're, you're now working with living people. And so there would be this profile again of um, the, the leader, the ruler on one side, and then on the other side would be an inscription that would help you identify who the ruler was. So again, some kind of character trait or something he had done, maybe a military victory um, or some kind of aspiration or accomplishment that he had done. And I say all that because it's real easy for us to kind of skim through the first two verses in Second Thessalonians. Almost an identical copy of the first two verses in First Thessalonians. But there's a, a subtle difference now that Paul places in this letter. And for most of us, we, I, I think, I mean, if you're like me, you would read it and you would just think, what's the big deal? What's, what's so different about this, right? But I want you to understand, because of the coins... Paul's making an incredibly bold and countercultural statement. Now, no doubt, Paul traveling as much as Paul traveled, he was a merchant. He would have seen these coins that were circulating of these living rulers of the time and the inscriptions on the back. And one of the reasons for Paul's choice of addressing his audience in verse 2 is that in the, the time of Augustus, there were coins minted in Thessalonica. And they depicted the head of Julius Caesar on one side with a laurel wreath, wreath uh, around with the inscription Theos or God. That was on one side. And then on the other side, there was an inscription of the word of Thessalonica. Now this isn't the exact coin. This is one saying Julius Caesar is divine, basically, just to kind of show you the pattern of the way the coins would have been presented back then. But basically what this coin was saying is that Julius Caesar was God of Thessalonica. Every time you exchanged money, 
you were making a statement with that money. And the statement that Julius Caesar wanted presented was that I am the God of this city. The God of Thessalonica. The city was claimed for the emperor. Now, Paul surely, again, knew of these coins. He was a merchant. He was a tent maker. He was practiced in, in the, the commerce of the day. We, we know Paul had a great connection with very wealthy merchants that would go from city to city. That's part of his network that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Again, these are, these are wealthy people, people who are exchanging money all the time. And so Paul makes this very bold claim in verse 2. That's just countercultural that Jesus was claiming the Thessalonians for himself. Right? That, that's, a, that's a pretty bold claim to make when everyone around you in the culture is saying the God of Thessalonians is Caesar. And Paul is saying, no, the God of this group of Thessalonians is Jesus. And so we see based on that and some other evidence that we'll, we'll look at as we go through that, that Paul is kind of co-opting some imperial rhetoric and he's applying it to Jesus. He, he's taking the, the slogans of the day, if you will, the, the political messaging and saying some of that's right, but the person you're directing it to is wrong. The person should be Jesus. So let's, let's look at these first four verses. Let's read them together. Starts out, verse 1, identical to 1 Thessalonians. We see the three main guys, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy in verse 1. And then he goes on, he says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And in verse 1 and 2, there is just a subtle little difference there. In, in the previous letter, he wrote God the Father, whereas here, twice, he describes him as God our Father. In the first instance, Paul was emphasizing that he, God was the father of Jesus Christ. But now he's emphasizing our adoption as God's children so that God is not only Jesus' father, but ours as well. I had an amazing opportunity to go to the courtroom this week. Normally going to court is not a fun thing. But, but I got invited to come to court. And it was, it was such a sweet day because... 
this, this little boy was getting his forever home. And he was officially in the eyes of the state. It, he, he had already been their son for a long time. You know how the state moves real quick, right? But, but in the eyes of the state, he was officially becoming their son. And someone asked, without telling me, but, hey, there's a pastor here. Could we pray for the ceremony? It's nice when you get volunteered for things like that, right? Just warning for those of you who aspire to be a pastor one day. Part of the job description is you will pray at everything. Birthday parties, lunches, dinners. Hey, there's a pastor here, right? Like, like y'all can't speak to God. I mean, come on, right? But, oh, there's a pastor here. And the judge comes out and the lawyer requests, hey, could, could we do this? And the lawyer said, in all of my years, I've never had this request before. Never had a request. And then she, you know, said, well, we, we you know, kind of need to do it procedurally correct. So she let me come up before the official service started and, and basically call the meeting to order with prayer. And, and as I was praying, I was thinking about this verse, how God has adopted us, that this picture of, of this little boy, Maxwell, being adopted by Hannah and Nick, like that, that's a picture of God adopting us into his family. And Paul wants us to understand that. He wants us to see that God chose us, right? Some of y'all got family that you didn't choose. And if you could, you wouldn't. But God chose us. That's amazing to think about. It, 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 it just is beyond my comprehension because I, I know how much I fail. I know how much sin I have. And yet even while I was still an enemy, God adopted me so that I, like Paul, can say, God, my father. We as a church can say, God, our Father. Now, outside of that subtle little change, there's not much difference in verses 1 through 2. So I want to move on to focus more time today on verses 3 and 4. But let's start this morning working our way backwards. I want to start with verse 4 and end with verse 3, if you don't mind. You see, in verse 4, we find Paul bragging about these Christians in Thessalonica. And I want you to look at the fact that he's bragging or or even boasting in the first place. This doesn't seem like something Paul would be doing. Now, he boasts about God all the time. But Paul's boasting about other people right now. He's bragging about these people in the church at Thessalonica. And this seems a little out of character in some ways for a Christian to be doing, right? We should should be bragging about God, we might say, but we shouldn't be bragging about each other. But yet, that's what he's doing. I think that's significant for us to, to just not zoom past, but pay attention to the fact that he is bragging or boasting about the, the faithfulness of these believers, We find Paul here giving thanks and and just bragging to other Christians, right? He's not just 
boasting to them. He's saying, look, I'm doing this to other people. I'm, I'm going to other churches and telling them about you. Telling them about how faithful you've been in the midst of your persecution that you've suffered. How you only had me for three weeks and yet somehow, miraculously, you are still alive as a church. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't imagine parachuting in somewhere and giving people three weeks and saying, okay, let me tell you every, everything I can about the gospel. And then a year later, finding out that there's still a church. <laughs> and not only that there is a church, but that it's growing and thriving in the midst of being persecuted. And this is what Paul's bragging and boasting about. And he's quite happy to boast to others about the virtues of these converts. And in fact, boast to one group of converts about another. In order to urge them all to a higher level of Christian belief and living. See, this is Paul's purpose in the bragging to the other churches about Thessalonica. So that they would be encouraged, so that they would be spurred on to greater faithfulness and love themselves. And so Paul's mission, his goal in this bragging and boasting behavior that seems, again, kind of counterintuitive, is, is to spur on and to encourage other believers. I'm sure you've all experienced this in your life at some point. I, I know for me, we, we have helped several church plants over the year. That's, we, were, we were a, a church plant ourselves, and about every two years we kind of invest and we help and this week, I got a call from Kevin, Broken Rice Baptist Church, the one we started partnering with last year. He'll be here hopefully in June to, to speak to us again. But I, I got a call from him and he said, hey, can you pray for us? We need to sell our house and we're, we're going to buy another house. And I said, well, isn't the church meeting in your house? Is, are you getting a bigger house? Like, what, What's the deal? He said, no, we're actually, we need to downgrade to save on resources. I was like, oh, okay, well, how's the church? Is everything? He goes, yeah, actually, we're moving to a fellowship hall because we don't have enough room anymore. That's encouraging to me. We're just a small part in the bigger cog of that church plant, but, but that encourages me to see God is continuing to reward their faithfulness in growing that church. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He, he's trying to spur on these other churches. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5 is literally Paul boasting about the church here in Thessalonica. There it says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, which would have included Thessalonians. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. That, that is an example of Paul bragging about the church in Thessalonica. We, we don't have to... Wonder what he said. That's what he said about them to other churches. Verse 4, like in 1 Thessalonians 1 chapter 8, reminds us of this 
amazing social network that Paul had. It's amazing to me that without the internet and without Facebook and without Instagram, Paul had this network of people, this network of churches that were connected together. It's really kind of baffling when you think about it. All of the modern conveniences of speedy travel didn't exist. You went on journeys for weeks. You left your family if you were a merchant for weeks, if not months, depending on where you were sailing to. And yet all of them are crisscrossing and they're, they're passing messages back and forth. And all of that is getting back to Paul. And Paul has this beautiful, amazing social network. It, it just reflects the fact that Paul was so well connected with all these various churches. And then he would then turn around and he would disseminate this information out. He would then share with the brothers and sisters, hey, this is, I just heard this report. This is what's happening. Go tell them over here. It's really amazing to think about this network that Paul managed without an iPad or or a computer. I mean, the dude must have had a good memory, right? I struggle with a hundred people. And Paul's connected to all of these different groups and all of these different cities. And Paul was at the center of this social network. And he was intentional about strengthening it and keeping it informed. So now it's important to understand why Paul is boasting, namely to, again, just to encourage all of those churches in that network. This becomes an opportunity for him to encourage them in their faithfulness, in their love. So that's what Paul's doing in verse 4. He's bragging about this church. He's boasting about them. But why? Let's look at why, and I want to end with why he's bragging, why he's boasting. In verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul says of this church that there there is a growth happening. And this growth is an ongoing, active thing. This isn't a, hey, you grew five years ago and you're plateaued now. No, this this is an ongoing growth. And and, and the word that he's using there, the the kind of compound word for uh, growing abundantly, it it implies an internal organic growth. That, That particular phrasing would have been used in books about trees. That That God... It's growing this tree, like this church, like a tree. And and there is this this internal kind of organic growth happening. It's people telling people about Jesus. That's it. That's about as organic as it gets. They would go to the market, let me tell you about Jesus. They'd go to the doctor, let me tell you about Jesus. Right? Right? Wherever they went, they were just telling people about Jesus. It it was this organic, natural growth that was just 
happening. And so Paul says they're growing in two ways. The first is faith. And the second is love one for another. And faith here refers to that it's part of a, a, an inward spiritual growth. Kind of, kind of a fortitude that grows under the pressure of persecution as they were experiencing. And this was a, an, an inward reality. But yet Paul says because of, the, because of the persecution that they were experiencing, we could see it externally. Right? I, I can't walk around and see your faith. But let me watch you in a tough situation and i can quickly assess your faith right it's easy for us to walk around and say man i have great faith and you're healthy your family's doing okay you got money in the bank right it's easy to have faith when everything's going right it's hard to see if you have faith when everything is going right oh but the minute suffering and sickness and persecution enter your life That's when you begin to see, that's when others begin to see, do you really have faith? Is it all just talk because things are good? Or is there something there of substance? And Paul says, when it comes to this church, there's a deep substance of faith. Now, this is significant considering back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul spoke of their lack of faith. And now, now he sees it flourishing. These letters were written pretty, pretty much back to back. It probably would have taken you know, several months for them to get there, but basically these are response letters. Paul sends the first one, he gets a response back, he sends the second one. Again, given travel time and the way things worked, that may have taken six months to a year for all that to happen. But something has happened between the first time Paul addressed them and the second time. And their faith that was struggling is now flourishing. And I hope this morning that comes as good news to you. Because it should. See, some of you may be here this morning and you're facing some tests and some trials. And if you're honest, you have found your faith lacking. Just like the Thessalonians did in the first letter. But like them, you can turn back to God. You can turn back to Jesus because he is faithful to grow you, to to grow that faith from a tiny seed to a mighty oak. There's hope for you this morning. Even if you're here this morning and you are completely hopeless. The thing we see different in these two letters is that you can grow in your faith. The second thing Paul is bragging about is the love they have for one another. Now love, if faith is kind of the inward reality, love is an outward manifestation. This is something that is is manifested in the care and the concern for one another. This this Christian love is exhibited by each one, when he says there, each one of all of you, the, the love you have one for another, right? It's something that is seen by another. 
And love is, is something in this context that is always visible, right? It's not just walking around going, man, I love you. No, there, there's action to go with this love. There's, there's something visible and viable that other people can see. Faith might be hidden from sight for a time, but that's not true with love. Some of you may not realize this, but Church on the Way is intentionally designed to help us become a church that Paul would brag about. And I hope after I finish the sermon that you won't take that design for granted because sometimes it's easy to take it for granted. Because not every church focuses on loving one another. Instead, they're programmed to focus on other things which aren't bad things. They're not bad things in and of themselves. But Paul says there is something special about a church that loves one another. Now, whenever I talk about love, it's always important that you understand I mean biblical love. The world has sought to redefine and expand the word love to the point that I'm not even sure Paul would recognize it. He probably wouldn't even use it. He'd probably come up with another term. Because, I mean, I, you know, I love tacos. I love the Florida Gators. And I love my wife. Right? Now, not all of those are the same. Hopefully my wife knows that my love for her is greater than the Florida Gators and just right beneath tacos. So, um, so, so let, me, let me end by anchoring love in Paul's own definition of love in 2 Corinthians 8 chapter 15, or excuse me, 8 chapters or verses 1 through 5. And I think we have this. We can put it up on the screen for you. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men... And of angels, but have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things now before i break this passage apart let me get this out of the way up front, a lot of you have probably heard this passage at weddings or, or in the context of marriage, but that's not the context that Paul is writing these words. The context is the church. This is what a church is supposed to look like, and this is what a church is supposed to act like, and this is what the church is supposed to prioritize as the most important thing that it does. So in verse 1, Paul compares love to speaking in tongues, or you just want to say spiritual gifts in general. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says you can have all of that, but if you don't have love, you don't have it. You're just this little bell or gong that just is annoying. 
really. In verse 2, Paul compares prophecy and biblical knowledge and faith to love. Right? He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that's, that's everything. If I know everything there is to know about God, the world, if I have all of that, and even if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. Verse 3, Paul compares philanthropy and sacrifice to love. If I give all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain what, church? Nothing. Okay, so Paul's made it pretty clear, I hope, that you can have all the spiritual gifts, all the prophetic knowledge of every biblical mystery, all the faith, be the biggest philanthropist in the world, and give away everything you have, but if you don't have love, it is pointless. Is that clear? Did he, did he make himself clear? I'm not putting words in his mouth. This is what he said, right? Now, again, don't mishear me. I am not saying any of those things, and I don't think Paul is saying any of those things are bad or evil. Okay? That is not what I nor Paul are saying. What Paul is saying, though, any or all of those things without love is pointless. It's pointless. Makes sense. Okay, so now Paul has made that clear of what the main thing should be. Right? We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. So he then shifts gears and he tells us what this love should look like. So up until this point, he hasn't told us anything about love. He just told us we should have it. That, that it's the most important thing. But he hasn't told us what to have or what that looks like. Now, I feel like Paul is a very complicated guy, right? There, there are some things that Paul said that were incredibly complicated. And there are things that we still, to this day, as faithful believers, argue, what did Paul mean? I don't think we're going to have that problem here. I feel like Paul wanted to put this on the bottom shelf because this is so important He wanted every single person with the ability to read or hear the written word to understand what love should look like. So I'm not going to spend a great deal of time exegeting these words because I don't think you have to. Again, I I think he picked words that we would all understand very, very clearly. Starting in verse 4, he says, Love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. So if we're going to be the kind of church that Paul is going to brag about, that means we need to be a church that's marked by being patient and kind. Everybody know what patience means? If you don't ask your spouse, they'll, they'll tell you. Mainly how you're not being patient. But you can learn from that too, right? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant 
or rude. How are we known as a church in the community? Are we arrogant, prideful, or are we humble? He goes on, it does not insist on its own way. When when you're loving someone, you're sacrificing yourself for their sake. So let me me put this in practical terms. Sometimes when a group of y'all get together after church and you're like, hey, let's go to lunch. And somebody throws out a restaurant and in your mind you go, oh, I hate that place. But that's where the group wants to go. Die to yourself. Every every restaurant has chicken tenders. Just eat those. (laughs) It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. We shouldn't be glorifying things that God doesn't glorify. We shouldn't be rejoicing in that. Now, this is, this is one of those areas where it kind of runs into our culture because our culture is rejoicing in a lot of things that we don't believe that God wants us to rejoice in. But let me, let me just encourage you. That's why the verses before this are so important because we're going to hit those things that our culture praises as a good thing and the Bible says as sin. That's going to happen. If, if we're faithful to God's word, it's going to happen. But if, if we've already been impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, arrogant, and rude, do you think they're going to listen to the gospel? No. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Again, we, we need to interpret this verse through the rest of the verses here, right? We, we're rejoicing in the truth, and we're, we're not rejoicing in wrongdoing, right? So, so I can't believe all things about certain people because some of those things are wrongdoing, right? Verse 8, love never ends. It doesn't stop. It keeps going. Even when you've been offended, we keep loving. Even when they've been rude and arrogant, we keep loving. Paul says prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll stop. Knowledge, it'll pass away. But love never ends. That's why it's the main thing. It's the one thing we're going to be doing for an eternity, and we better get it right. All of that other stuff will not matter. It won't matter. But love will, Paul says. Guys, this is why we do small groups the way we do it. It's to encourage each and every one of you to learn how to love 
one another. You see, learning and practicing loving one another is essential for being a believer. And we know it is hard to love a hundred people. That's difficult. So we start small. And we practice with eight to fifteen people every week. So that one day we would be a church that Paul would brag about. Because they have love one for another. We want to be a church that keeps the main thing the main thing. Everything else is bonus. Everything else is just the gravy or the icing on the top, right? But if we don't learn how to love one another, we are in danger of missing everything. And that's why small groups aren't Sunday school. It's why they're not Bible studies. And I know that frustrates some of you because that's what you grew up with and that's what you're used to. You're used to going to a class where one person talks and everybody listens. That's not what small groups are for. They're weekly opportunities to grow in our love one for another. For most of you, if you're honest, these are people that you wouldn't hang out with every week apart from the gospel. And that's by design. God doesn't want a country club where we all like the same things, we all vote the same way, we all do the same things. That's not, that, that's, it's real easy again to love people like us. It's difficult to sit in the room week in and week out and learn how to love somebody who believes differently about you on certain things. Not the gospel, not the, the, the essentials of the faith. But they might be a Seminole fan. God bless them. They need your prayers. Listen, that's a silly example, but but the point is, they're not going to think like you and act like you, and that's good. Learning how to love that person is going to help you love those people at work who, guess what, aren't like you. You need to practice every week loving one another. That's why we do church the way we do church because we want the main thing to be the main thing. It helps us to learn how to bear with one another. We learn how to serve one another. Man, listen, this is one of the things I love about our church is me finding out about a catastrophe or disaster after the fact. I hear about a lot of them up front. But I also hear about a lot that happen and the small group just takes care of it. And I just get a report. Hey, listen, so-and-so, this happened and we just rallied together and we, you know, we, we just took care of it. I'm thinking this is what a church is supposed to look like. People loving one another, not a pastor loving all these people. Nothing wrong with that either, okay? But I'm one person. In one place. You guys are scattered throughout the community. You're seeing needs that I never see. 
And instead of thinking, oh, what I need to do is run back to the church building and figure out how to fix it, you just talk to your small group and say, hey, can we do this? And sometimes two small groups pull together and say, you know what, this is bigger than us. And so, hey, let me, let me reach out to my old small group and see if they'll go in with us and we'll do it. And then a week later, two weeks later, I hear about it. <laughs> That's so encouraging to me as pastor. Because like Paul, I then get to brag about how you love one another. Each week we gather to learn how to be patient and kind to one another. Some of you, I love you. I love you. I love you. But you struggle with being kind. You think you're kind. And we still love you. But you need to grow in that. And that only happens life on life. Otherwise, you just move from group to group and person to person, offending people as you go, leaving this wake in your path. Some of us need to learn how to be, to not be irritable and resentful. It's easy to sit back and think, man, all these other people got all this stuff going on that's good. Until you get in a room and start opening up and sharing and going, you know, I, I know you think my husband's great, but let me tell you, <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's got some weaknesses, right? And conversely, some guys are like, oh man, this, this wife just seems so put together. She's on top of everything and my wife's not like that. And then you sit down in a room with eight to 10 people and they start getting honest and talking and you realize, oh. They don't have it all together either. That, that helps us to, to tear down that envy that we have inside. We need to learn how to not be rude. So how are you doing with loving one another? How are you doing with serving one another? How are you doing with being patient and kind with one another? How are you doing with not being irritable or resentful? How are you doing with not being rude? Now you may be asking, why is Paul so fixated on love, us loving one another? Can't we just go study something and, and learn about something and just, you know, Again, not a bad thing. Please don't hear me say it's a bad thing. But Paul's fixated on it because Jesus was fixated on it. Jesus said in, in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. This is Jesus's commandment to you. Church. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. So that means sacrificially laying down your life, being willing to put others first. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have all these spiritual gifts, if you have all this prophetic power and all this knowledge and all this stuff. No, if you have love 
one for another. You see, Paul paid attention to what Jesus actually said and tried to create churches that looked like churches that Jesus wanted us to look like. That's why it's so important for us to get together every week and practice because this is the commandment that Jesus gave us. He gave us a lot, but, but this is one specifically he said we would be known by. And conversely, not known by. And you know, it's because of this that communion was known in the early church as the love feast. <laughs> it was the time when we came together around the table in a, in a method and a manner of love for one another. Paul even had to get on to the Corinthians a little bit because they weren't being loving in the way they administered the table. But the outside world's looking at this going, this is like a love feast. These people are just, they just love one another. It's crazy. This morning as we come and partake of the Lord's Supper, I want you to examine your heart and ask, like, am I loving one another? Am I growing in this love that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians? Am I gathering together and practicing loving one another? Or have I been spending a lot of time complaining because it doesn't look the way I want it to look? Or complaining because the people that God sent me to my group don't look the way I want them to look or act the way I want them to act. And maybe you need to confess and repent to your small group this week. As, as the Holy Spirit has been convicting you and showing you, hey, this, these are areas where I'm not being very loving. And as we come to this time of celebrating what Jesus has done, he, he is the reason that it is even possible for us to love one another. Without him coming, living that perfect life, offering himself up as a sacrifice for his enemies. His enemies. <laughs> that is love, folks. It's easy to love your friends. Most of the time it's easy to love your family. But your enemies? And to give your life up for your enemies? And yet that's exactly what we see Jesus doing for us. I want you to think about that as you come this morning and you partake with us in the Lord's Supper. And again, maybe you need to spend some time just you and God just confessing that, that you're not doing so well in this love department. Ask Him to help you. To grow you in this love by grounding you in His love for you. This morning, let's pray. Father, as we come to this time, I, I pray that you would convict our hearts. Your, your Holy Spirit would do the work, Lord, that, that you promised that he would do. It's, it's not about my words, but about the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in our lives.
And for some, that conviction may be for the first time for the, the need to put their trust and faith in you and what Jesus did for them on the cross. For others, Lord, it may be confessing that we are not very loving. You, you exist in a perfect community, Lord. The love that you share for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit should be our aspiration of how we should love one another, Lord. And Father, I pray. I pray that we would be the kind of church that you would brag about. Not because we're a certain size. Not because we do certain things in the community, Lord, but because we have love one for another. Help us to be faithful in that. In the days and weeks to come. These things in Jesus.